Today's episode of Idle Weekend is brought to you by Bombas, a great place to get cool, creative, and above all, comfortable socks. Go to getbombas.com slash weekend to get 20% off your first order. Welcome to Idle Weekend. I'm Danielle Riendo, and I'm here with my co-host Rob Zachney to wind down another week. This weekend, we're talking about menace and paranoia. We're both playing games that sort of play upon our itching sense of being followed or being screwed by our allies and, you know, possibly being blown away. So, Rob, I know you are definitely playing something that uh, that plays upon those, those weird little paranoid fears that we all have. Yeah, um, so... I'm playing a game of subterfuge uh, for the first time, uh, and this is a game I've had sort of had my eyes on eyes on for like the last uh, for like the last year, uh, like the the shut up and sit down uh, crew, or maybe it was Video Ghosts. Uh, they're kind of related productions. Uh, I can't remember sure. which had had a really cool uh, series of videos around subterfuge. But basically, uh, longtime like followers of say like Idle Thumbs probably remember a game. Uh, called Neptune's Pride, <laughs> yes. which was a real-time, like, slow-motion strategy game uh, that was basically just like it, it was like it was like online Risk, uh, where everyone sort of controlled these little planets, and you built up fleets and launched them at your your friends and neighbors. Uh, it was all very simple. What, what was complicated was the politics around all those decisions because like really combat was resolved uh basically like through sheer strength of numbers so what you could do to skew the odds in your favor was deceive people lie uh make plans and i played a couple games of uh of neptune's pride uh one of them was, was kind of a souring experience and, and i still basically blame uh uh chris and, and nick brecken uh, for that <laughs> Uh, basically because Nick Brecken was playing to win and Chris was playing to help Nick Brecken win, which I feel was like kind of contrary to the, like the purpose of the game. Like everyone else is trying to play, like, play to win. And Brecken basically had someone, uh, who was like just operating on his side for the entire game. I feel like uh, this was all a ploy to get good radio out of it. Like knowing Chris, that was probably like his actual meta strategy. There. I mean, definitely. Like, like you know, he's Chris always sounds so like damn avuncular when talking about games sometimes. But like, there's a real like Joker esque, um, oh, sure. like uh, like agent of chaos uh, type of thing <laughs> that, that goes on with Chris. Uh, so anyway, so that was Neptune's Pride, and it was it was a really cool game, uh, and you could sort of set it for whatever pace you wanted. But the maddening part was the game never stopped. But, like, it would take your fleets, like, a full day to cross a small gap between star systems. Uh, to launch, like, a long-range strike, your your ships could be in transit for, like, two and a half days. And you couldn't give them orders. Like, once they were launched, they were launched. It was all very, um, it was all very Dr. Strangelove in that regard. <laughs> yeah. Like, once you committed to a move, uh, you, were, you were sort of locked in. Then you watched it all unfold in slow motion. And the real danger with a game like this is that it kind of never stops. Like, it's a 24-7 kind of thing. Um, you don't have to interact with it that much, but you can also never really stop monitoring it. 
which is kind of the dilemma I'm in now. Uh, so Neptune's pride was 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 super simple, uh, and subterfuge is is sort of like that, but it looks like it's it's trying to have a little more game design, uh, a, a, you know, a, a little more maybe uh, board game uh, elements thrown into that mix. So fundamentally, it's it's a similar kind of thing, but combat resolves a little less. Um, a little less like winner takes all. There's less of a defender's advantage. Um, there are certain specialists you can hire that sort of break the rules and maybe affect combat outcomes a, a little bit. But ultimately, it, it comes back down to lie, cheat, deceive, <laughs> uh, make plots, make deals, uh, which is which is a lot of fun. Uh, but at the same time, it's also just absolutely hellish <laughs> like <laughs> and the other problem is this i'm coming to this game late but this is a game that was put together by uh, nick capazzoli okay yeah and if you followed his twitter uh at all in the last year i don't think it's just that he likes subterfuge i think it's that like <laughs> it's the game where he like unleashes the monster that he apparently really is <laughs> <laughs> he um, is subterfuge. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So so I'm in basically a game put together by him and his friends. They've all played a bunch of games like this. They're all pretty good at it, which basically means they're all like lying, cheating scum. Possibly. I don't know, but it feels like maybe they all are. And and to, to really to really amp up the paranoia, uh right after I joined the game, uh, I got a direct message from uh, our friend Joel. Yes. And he was basically playing Yenta between me and another player um, <laughs> about, like, the fact that we should be allies. And I straight up asked him, like, well, can I trust this guy? And Joel, <laughs> like, I swear to God, like, Joel, like, comes across, like, the old warrior you find in the mountain who's like fighting days are behind him. He just sort of, he just sort of like says to me, he says, if you go with him, it will probably come down to the two of you in the end. Uh, and then I was like, do I say, you know, are you in this game? Are you like, who are you? I don't, I don't recognize any of these handles as, as yours. And he was like, Oh no, I can't live that life anymore. Oh my god. That subterfuge life. <laughs> I was like, oh shit, what am I what have I gotten into here? Wow. I just picture him like wearing a cowboy hat and like, you know, with with a gray beard. He you know, I'm picturing him like sword dad, actually, a little bit, and with the cane and everything and just being like, Yeah, can't live that life anymore. You know? Like yeah. like smoke taking a drag, just you know, oh my god. That that's a perfect that's a beautiful image. Yeah, it's wow. Uh, so, are you are you enjoying this? It sounds like this is confounding and and you know it's under your skin, but it's like insidious in certain ways, maybe. Yeah, it's it's that kind of enjoyment that I think you sometimes get around a really good political thriller, right? Like so, like ah, yes. Back yeah. when back when Game of Thrones was a much better show. Um, or a much better series of novels really Um, Mm. like you knew bad things were going to happen 
And you could see people, characters' wheels starting to turn. Like, you know, the, the end of the first novel is basically a series of plots and counterplots going off all at once. Uh, and it all shakes out uh, really chaotically and disastrously for, for everyone involved. Um, and is that enjoyable? Well, it's it's hard in terms of you're invested in these characters and, and there's going to be a lot of, like, crushing disappointment and, and betrayal uh, in in that story. But at the same time, it's enjoyable in that it's so heightened and it's dealing with problems that are so different from your your day to day, right? Like you might have issues with your coworkers and everything, or like <laughs> you might have like disputes with your partner or family or something like that. But like it's a different magnitude when it's like everyone's talking to each other and the stakes are very high and ultimately there can only be like one winner and who's it going to be yeah it's a very different thing so it's it's enjoyable in that sense because it's so uh yeah it's it, it's it's so incredibly heightened but it's also miserable because like here you're not even a spectator you are in the middle of it and you're talking to people you have real life relationships with and you're not sure if you're all just lying to each other oh man um and then it never stops. So like last night I went to bed and I started second guessing my moves and oh, no. I got out of bed, grabbed my phone <laughs> and uh, spent about another hour uh, like texting and, uh, and, and giving orders. Wow. It's wow. Okay. Yeah. I, I would definitely need to stay away from this because I am the kind of person who, uh, I'm at risk of taking things personally sometimes <laughs> and I would worry that it would actually impact like personal relationships if I if I went in too deep on something like this. I'd yeah. be worried that I'd be like, oh no, am I really am I actually pissing them off? Like, did I actually like oh shit, you know? I'd be I'd be worried about that aspect of it for sure. Yeah, it's like I definitely have have that concern as well. Uh, but but I think with these games, they're so. They're in the magic circle enough. Very much so. Yeah. Like this okay. is like if yeah. you if you sit down to play this, like you're basically signing up for exactly this kind of thing. Um, sure. Now, admittedly, I've seen that blow up in places. Like I played a game of uh, Battlestar Galactica, uh, the board game, where the lines got a little blurred. And an argument about who was the Cylon also turned into kind of a referendum on some longstanding friendships. Oh, no. uh, yeah, and, and like, so sometimes, like, even though everyone signs up for that, it still gets a little weird. But that's kind of what you, like, that's about what people bring to, bring to the encounter. But I think here, like, everyone's an old pro with this game. And even though I have my misgivings, like, I play, I've played a fair bit of games like this, too. Uh, so part of me is like, oh man, this is really stressful and horrible. And the other part of me is like gleefully sort of steepling my fingers, uh, <laughs> you know, and, and, and petting my little cat and things like that. Uh, so that, you know, that's, that's kind of where it's at. Um, the, the, the other funny thing is, um, so there's always some new people in a game like this. And this time, I guess I'm one of the new people and it's never exactly clear what you can expect from them. Uh, but then you're you're also left to like 
when people break from the norms you're used to in a game like this. So, for instance, one of my neighbors in this game um, just started sending ships out to colonize all the outposts, all the neutral outposts uh, that were between <laughs> his territory and mine. And all my other neighbors, we sort of divided up like, you get this, I get that, blah, blah, blah. Uh, this guy just grabs everything. <laughs> and no message. Mm. And I was like, well, what's that about? And so I could have reached out to him. I could have been like, well, okay, like, that's not really cool. Uh, what are we going to do about this? But his ships, were, his ships were already committed to the move. So basically in my head, he just turned into Hitler. Like, I was like, no, like, like negotiation's impossible. Like, this guy's clearly, like, just, you know, trying to grab all the uh, all the territory he can. He's not going to honor any deal. Uh, so you just got to go get him. Uh, and so, like, I basically threw everything I have at him. Uh, and that's still unfolding, and I don't think he's seen it happen. It could be he's just really inattentive. He's been, like, logged in twice. Like, he might not have known, like, that, like, this is how it all read. Uh, but nevertheless, like, I've basically responded to, like, an opening move from a player who might be entirely new, uh, with, like, sending the B-52s full of hydrogen (laughs) bombs, like, after him. Good. I mean, unless that, of course, with this stuff, you always have to second guess, like, is that part of the plot? He's playing the aloof, you know, inexpert player yes. in order yes. to, to throw you off. And this is like all part of his plan. I love that stuff. I, I don't know if I'm capable of thinking on that level. Like, because I'm always going to second and third guess every single move and probably be, you know, removed to inaction because of that. Because I'll be like, but but maybe this is all part of their plan. And, you know, like several levels deep of that. So. This game would get under my skin as well, I think. I haven't played it, but mm, I probably shouldn't. <laughs> yeah, I think it's... So, you know, one of the reasons I want to talk about this a little bit is that, I like, it, it gets at a lot of things that I think are, like like I mentioned, sort of compelling in fiction, right? Like, workplace dramas, uh, you know, political dramas, all this stuff res- revolve around these sorts of, like, these sorts of plots and these sort of crossed wires and and guessing at, at people's intentions. Uh, because I think I think it, it's a powerful fantasy to be sort of the uh, the person who can sort of uh, see others' intentions, yeah, uh, and and sort of peel away their masks and see what they're going to do and 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 figure out like what the what the plays are going to be before they happen and then make plans accordingly. Uh, that's that's a really powerful fantasy, uh, and it's a power fantasy that like I think broadly most games don't do a great job of bringing to life. Maybe more so in board games, because uh, you've got more, like, trader games and and more, like, uh, short-form, like, empire-building games and things like that. And you're uh, also reading people's faces physically. Yes. When you're, I mean, typically when you're playing a board game, that's, you know, you, you actually have to be in a room with another human being watching their body language and their face and their, you know, all of that goes into it as well. Yeah, that's 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 a really good point. And a game like this, you can't read their faces, but you can certainly read their words yeah. and sort of try to get <laughs> at what they are like what they're saying and not saying in their messages. Uh, which is which is also a lot of fun. The only the only video game I can think of that that really does anything like this is sort of obviously um Crusader Kings, right? Where 
you got a lot of hidden information about what yeah. characters are up to, and that information becomes revealed, and you learn what their motivations are. Uh, and a big part of the game is also about creating plots and recruiting new people to your side and strengthening the plot until you're finally ready to sort of pull the trigger. And that's when you sort of, you know, uh, you know, you know, stab the, uh, stab the Duke of Genoa, for instance. Um, (laughs) and, and, and that's really cool. But at the same time, it's also very different because you're still working within, albeit really sophisticated systems, uh, that are, that are set up by Crusader Kings they are still sort of mechanistic systems uh, that, that don't really, you know, don't really have that, that human, that human element. You, you, yeah. you sort of bring that yourself and sort of add it to the information the game spits out. Uh, but it, I think it's, it's one reason that like a really great, it's so hard to do a really great crime game. Uh, for instance, right? Yeah. Like, you know, it's it's silly to sort of ask like, where's gaming's blank and then compare it to another medium. But at, at the same time, like, there have literally been Godfather games, um, yeah. but you don't see like things that sort of bring out the you don't see many games that sort of bring out the most exciting and dramatic moments in, say, The Sopranos or uh, the Godfather films or uh, some of the uh, you know court politics that that unfold in the wire for instance yeah i think la noir wanted to do some of that <laughs> i don't know if it really has succeeded mm, yeah that's really much. Good i mean it, with the sort of facial recognition aspect of it when you were sort of a detective and you had to kind of call people on their bullshit or believe them or, or sort of whatever else i mean it was really unsubtle but it was maybe a step towards that um, you know, it's it's funny you mentioned these crime games because I am playing the ultimate crime game right now, or at least the ultimate crime game of the of the fall season, I suppose. I just started Mafia 3, mm-hmm. which is Yeah, okay, so it's an open world, you know, game. It's in the Mafia series, which there've been a couple of other uh, obviously games on it. I guess we we have we don't have to say this, but I'll say it anyway to be uh, you know a, a proper journalist. Friend of the show, Seth Rosen worked on the game, so you know take it all. He was one of probably a thousand people who worked on that game. Yeah, exactly. Like I'm um, sure we know other people, but I that's, that's somebody I consider a friend. So you know that's there. Um, this is probably, at least in my experience, the most racially charged big budget video game I've ever played in my life. It begins with uh, sort of a disclaimer, actually, uh, that says, yeah, I'm paraphrasing, but we created an anth- you know a fairly authentic picture of what the South was like in the 60s, including racist, abhorrent language and racist concepts. And uh, we wanted to present this to you honestly. And here it is. It's you know, basically saying those things. Wait, so and is it like seriously like people are going to be talking like George Wallace in this movie? Uh, in yeah. this game? Yeah. It's I've heard the N-word like 15 times already and I've only played the first like okay. part of the first mission. Like it's very it's extreme. It's pretty extreme. You play as Lincoln Clay who's a, you know, a, a black man. Uh he's a Vietnam vet and he is sort of leading the the sort of the black faction of of organized crime in this city that's basically New Orleans in 1968. And, you know, very first mission, you are basically, uh, you're with one other guy, he's a white dude, and you are about to steal some money from the treasury, and you have this whole plot to it, and you're driving over to, to the, you know, to the treasury building, 
and the you know the your white accomplice says hey you know by the way it might get a little rough in there with the language if i play along nothing personal i don't think like that and so already it's setting up like okay and your character lincoln actually says well it's not like i've never been called an n-word before and it i i was sitting there playing this and i was like i knew that would come up at some point but that was like among the first lines in the game and i was like okay they are priming me for this you go in to this mission and yeah it's like super racist this this you know asshole white basically kind of like a white cop but he's like a treasury guard mm-hmm. person is is sort of leading you through because you know you're you're playing as in in game you're sort of playing as a worker who is there for the you know the burned bills the worn out bills that they're going to burn them and you know saying all this racist shit and i'm just sitting there like holy fuck they they're not pulling any punches with this this is you know this is interesting. <laughs> I'm very interested to see where they go with this. Uh, it's definitely going to be sort of a pulpy revenge fantasy. That's what they're setting up as sort of the the overall narrative. Yeah. Uh, you know, you're you're playing as this guy who, you know, has kind of gotten screwed by the Italian mafia. You know, the the folks you know who are making the money and sort of running organized crime in right. the city. And uh, I know Austin Walker at Vice Gaming has done, uh, he did an interview actually with one of the lead writers on the game who was himself uh, a black dude uh, talking about sort of balancing the elements of a pulpy revenge fantasy with, you know, a game that is, I, I think, and it, and it seemed from this interview, uh, you know, attempting to be thoughtful in its sort of presentation of, of racism in the 60s right. in the South. It is maybe a little heavy-handed for sure, but I, you know, I'm, I'm saying this as a, as a white girl, but uh, it it seems to me that they at least uh, put some thought into this, <laughs> which is more than than you can say for yeah. a lot of games. Is it right is now. it heavy-handed just in in that in general the 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 game is like everything's sort of cranked up to eight or ten. Or is it that it's heavy-handed and that the game keeps wanting to make sure, keeps needing to reassure you that like, yo, we know this is racism and we yeah. agree that racism is bad, so we're gonna be cool about this, right? Like, is yeah. it kind of that heavy-handed? It's much more that, and like, yeah. I I definitely understand where they're coming from in that. Like, I I we live in a shitty hot takes driven <laughs> universe right now right where somebody it would people take things uh out of context pretty often and uh you know that sort of thing could easily happen i could easily see like fox news being like you can drive a car with a confederate flag what a maybe fox news wouldn't do that because that's their core audience i don't know whatever you know what i'm saying though like it's easy for someone to take something out of context in this game and they seem to be really really carefully trying to mitigate that like especially that your sort of white accomplice being all like yeah you know that's a shitty attitude what an asshole and like if i say something like that i'm playing along but i don't think that you know he's like yeah very clearly like your ally is not a racist like it's very <laughs> you know right. like it is a little heavy-handed but i your but ally I do has checked his why. privilege Exactly, yes. exactly. Like, maybe to a degree that maybe a white dude in the 60s wouldn't have done. Like, Right. I mean, I mean that's the... Maybe, I don't know. That's sort of the trouble, and it's... It's it's sort of a... Okay, so I think, like, a, a major problem is, is... I think one of the reasons this era 
that we live in right now uh, yeah. has become so like racially polarized in some ways, um, in in many ways, is is sort of that like I genuinely think there was like this naive belief that like racism was a thing of the past, and while it still existed, it was like a rearguard action, um, right. and and was was on the way out. And that racism was also easy enough to be like, if that person's racist, then they're then they're bad, and they're just bad all the way. They're they're bad all the way down, because uh, that's what racism is. It's a, it's a thing that bad people are, and I'm not a bad person, ergo. Uh, and I I think when then when you take that that lens and sort of project it back into the past, like you you end up you end up having trouble confronting some of the more troubling things, which is like a lot of otherwise really good compassionate people were like awful racists yeah. uh, that, that racism was a um, wasn't a choice, but it was like an entire like school of thought that was like baked into a huge, huge swath of American culture. Right. Um, and, and to a degree still is, but it's, it's that inability to appreciate the nuance that like, Yes. Racists were also a lot of other things. And racism isn't this like sticker that makes, you know, it easy to Absolutely. identify a bad person from a good person. Like the, 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 the shitty, horrible thing is that like racism has always been awful and a lot of otherwise good people have always been racists. Yes, absolutely. And also that that racism is always so easy to see. Right. Like it, this is definitely oh, it's the south in the 60s, so it's like extreme racism, but it's it's almost <laughs> extreme. like extreme. Yeah, basically it's like extreme racism. Um, but obviously, <laughs> you know, we live in a world now where a lot of it is more insidious than that, of course. You know, we talk about institutionalized racism and how it's like in all these structures and it's just sort of, dis you know, this disgusting thing that's just sort of seeped into the cloth that that is our society and that sort of thing, as opposed to like, here it is, that guy's a racist and you can shoot him. Like, it, it is like a very, you know, on its face. Like, it's a pretty <laughs> surface level kind no. of thing to to approach it by. I don't, I don't say that as like, I don't want to criticize Hangar 13's, you know, I don't want to criticize sort of their approach to this because they are absolutely making a pulpy video game ass video game as well. And that's maybe where the most difficult part of this is, right? And, we, and we've talked very recently about this general concept of like things that are really, really funny sometimes can go to darker places, right? Things that are lighter can go to darker places right. or things that are darker can go to lighter places and that sort of thing. So I, I, I want to stick with it and I want to play the whole damn thing and I want to, you know, see all of the places where it goes. And I, and I do want to have a note of appreciation that at least they took some risks with this and they seem to me, again, as not an expert, as a white person, they seem to be at the very least trying to be thoughtful, even if it's pretty heavy handed. Well, and, and to, to be fair, like I am like, ha you know, having having sort of stated that um, that critique of uh, of a certain view of racism. I'm also totally cool with a game that's like, yo, you hear what that dude just called you? You can shoot him now. And like, yeah, yeah OK, yeah. that's cool. Like, I'm, <laughs> exactly. I'm a game for that right now. Uh, like, like, it's kind of fun to shoot racists as opposed to being a white cop or soldier shooting brown people in a desert, you know? Like, it's like, hey, 
you know what? Maybe this isn't super subtle, but that's kind of a little more cool in a way. And there you know? was there was something kind of like because I'm flashing back to Dishonored. Where sure. occasionally, like you'd overhear a guard say something, or like when you had the heart uh, in the in the main game, and oh, you could learn yeah. something about the character, and it was like, oh, this person is like so basically confirms this person is just a huge asshole. It's just a horrible person, and I, I always had this like sort of gleeful like, well, here we go. You're dead now. <laughs> it's just it's time to go. Time to go take care of this. Yeah. And so like I am, I, I'm perfectly okay with a game that's like. Uh, like, well, I guess that person's beyond redemption. <laughs> time, to, time to take them out. <laughs> Bye. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, aside from all that, um, in terms of in, in in terms of the game itself, like, is it so? The mafia games have always been really weird. Um, yes. The first game was the, the first game was really interesting. Do you ever play Mafia One? A bit, yes. I I didn't play the whole thing by any means. Neither did I, because the missions got insanely hard. Yeah, that definitely happened. (laughs) Uh, But I loved, like, it opened with you as a cab driver, and you you start by... Yeah, Yeah, it was was really kind of cool. It was sort of this open world, but then there were also, like, clearly, like, laid out scripted missions. So it was more you drove through the open world, and then you entered, like, the level space uh, and and played through it there. It It was a nifty game. And then Mafia 2 was basically, <sighs> Mafia 2 was like this in- insanely detailed open world to no real end. Yeah. Like the game was basically like entirely linear, uh, but, but it was so massively overproduced. Uh, it, was, it was sort of the, the, the peak of like open world for open world's sake. Uh, what's, what's going on in Mafia 3? So it, seems to be I again I'm I'm pretty early on but it feels like a pretty rich giant open world with you know more like that structure from the first game that that the missions themselves are very designed they're very sort of specific and prescripted um but the world is really pretty and really gorgeous and really architecturally interesting cuz it's basically you know New Orleans not a place we see often in games and I am like I am in, intrigued by both the world itself and by, you know, sort of going through Lincoln's missions and, and his own kind of vendetta and going through the story. Like, I'm actually really, really interested in the story as well as sort of fucking around in the world. So, yeah, I mean, again, super early in, but very interested in both aspects for sure. Oh, man, it's 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 God, it's the game I'm probably most excited about this fall other than maybe dishonored too as well like yeah this and just i mean i can't say no to more dishonored even though i i not to go off on a giant tangent and i promise i won't this is a dishonored tangent i'm i'm so on (laughs) on board with that tangent go i am forever ashamed i didn't finish dishonored i got caught in that that sort of endless level where you don't have much many of your powers and kind of fell off because i was you know, it was during that year I didn't play a ton of games. It was like right. I played Mass Effect 3 and Dishonored and a few small things, and it was like, that was it. Like, 2012 was kind of that for me, basically. Um, but Dishonored is maybe the only game I've ever played in my life that actually grossed me out. And, like, I kind of liked that. Like, what, I kind of dug that. The, the entire world feels like it reeks. And I know that that sort of... <laughs> 
<laughs> there's like rotting meat everywhere. People yeah. are diseased. And it's like, I know a zombie game or a horror game would probably also reek, but there's something different about Dishonored. There's something different about that sort of Victorian steampunk whale oil, gross itching. There's there's just something disgusting about that world. And of course, the fact that the characters are all total assholes. You know, I mean, I, I feel like young baby Emily was like the only non-asshole in that game. <laughs> like everybody else was such a dick. And, and like that also sort of contributed to it. It was like this world is corrupt and yeah. gross and makes your skin crawl. And, and you it's had to awesome. cleanse it. Yeah, you did with all your amazing powers. Yeah. It's kind of it's kind of awesome. And like I'm not easily grossed out. Like I'm in EMT. Like people bleed on me and barf on me. And I'm kind of like, well, it's gross, but whatever. Like this game actually makes me feel like a little nauseated just thinking about like, oh, it's filthy. And that's <laughs> goddamn awesome. You know, like, that's great. <laughs> oh, man, no, the, the game is so full of great touches. Like, the, the, oh, like yeah. the corpse trains that would run through certain levels oh, and yeah. the dumping grounds uh, that oh. you'd find in places. Uh, the, the quarantine barricades where on the one side of it you had, like, ritzy townhouses and yeah. on the other side you had people basically, like, uh, dying of hemorrhagic fever, shambling uh, around. Oh, uh, it was yeah. so gross and so good. Disgusting. Uh, oh. But also, I just thought the art style was so gorgeous. It looked like a comic book brought to life. Yeah. Um, oh. Like every like like that game in motion still looked like every frame had like been painted. Yes. Um, oh God, I love that game so so it's intensely really much. Um, it's so really, you fell really off it. You fell off it in that level where you're basically that, captured like and disarmed. The- yeah, it's like the seventh level out of nine or whatever, and it's it's towards the end, but like right. you, so it's yeah, like you don't have all your district? cool stuff. Yes, I think yeah, so. I believe yeah. so. That, yeah, yeah, that is a that is a frustrating level because you have to do a lot of stealth to get to your gear. Um yeah. and then and then you start dispensing some rough justice. Okay, that sounds pretty um, cool. I don't think I got to the rough justice. And again, like I, I don't fully re- I I don't even remember exactly what I was doing. I just know it was somewhere in that section that I just like not that I was like, oh, fuck this and threw the controller. I just fell off because so much other, you know, other things were going on in my life at that point. But yeah, it's, I, I would love to finish it before Dishonored 2 comes out. I don't know if that's going to happen. Yeah. <laughs> but it would be cool if I could find like, you know, pr- I'm probably only a, a, a few hours from the end. It wasn't like, you know, it was fairly well into the game. So we'll see. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I would say like. Definitely finish that game because, like, it has one of the best ending levels. Oh, uh, nice. that, that really, like, oh man, so there's actually, it has, like, kind of a so you're kind of at like the false ending, okay? Almost. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then when you're, you're kind of dumped off by your compatriots, and yeah, exactly. Yeah, and then, yeah, and, and then there's sort of a uh, a a sort of really climactic finale, uh, to, to all of that 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 I really, really love. Um, and then the, the other thing I would say is that the DLC, the, 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 the Dowd adventures, um, mm. uh, what was it? It's all around Delilah. Uh, but I can't, oh, okay. uh, I can't yeah. remember the name of the two, there's Brigmore yeah. witches and there's, there's something else. Uh, but both of those are legitimately brilliant, uh, oh, DLC awesome. expansions, like as okay. good as the, as the base game in some places oh, better. Yeah. Okay, I'm in it to win it. I'm gonna I'm gonna find some way <laughs> to play the rest of Dishonored, um, so I can fully be ready for God yeah. is coming out in like 
not even a month i think it's, Man, it's very it's very soon I am, I am so torn between like okay I'm, I'm debating like whether i should just get mafia for my ps4 right now or whether i just need to order my pc mm. and wait on everything until i got my new rig that's that's the dilemma i'm suffering from right now yeah because I, I mean I really want a new rig yeah. I mean, if it's going to be a little while, you should probably... I think Mafia 3 is very much worth playing and diving right. into. So, like, if it's going to be a little while, just do it now. Just do before, it. Just do before, it up. Again, before Dishonored comes out. <laughs> so you can, you can <laughs> do the, Mafia yeah, before 3. It's, before it's Dishonored <laughs> Halloween, yeah. Exactly. Uh, all right. Exactly. <laughs> all right. Good Good plan. I think we've uh, I think we've we've got a lot of yeah. uh, actionables and key deliverables uh, here. Yes, we do. Uh, uh, good meeting. So, yeah. Good meeting. <laughs> good meeting. <laughs> Handshakes all around. Good job. Uh, awesome. Do, uh, so I guess uh, from here we've got some we, we've got some correspondence to dig into because yeah, boy, did you kick the hornet's nest? Uh, the magical, <laughs> the magical whimsical hornet's nest. I pissed off a lot of magical realistic hornets. <laughs> Awesome, yeah, so we're going to go right into our weekend correspondence after a brief message from our sponsor. Danielle, do you know what I saw this morning? The sun rising over the mountains, kissing the Los Angeles skyline with golden fire. Yes, but I also saw my breath this morning. I was making an early morning grocery run, and it was so cold that my breath was coming out in a fog. It was magical. Uh, but do you know what really made the moment magical? What? My high-quality calf-length fall marls from Bombas. With their soft, reinforced footbed and extra-long staple cotton, my feet were snuggled into a stylish, autumnal piece of footwear that made a brisk fall morning feel as cozy as an evening by the fire. And if that sounds like something you'd be interested in, then you should head over to getbombas.com slash weekend to get 20% off your first order. That sounds really great, Rob, but, like, I, I seriously need to know, what the hell is a marl? <laughs> well, Danielle, I'm no sock expert, but I assume marl is the Pokemon that inspired this fall footwear collection. Maybe it's the Pokemon that looks like the comfortable sock that you, and our listeners, have been craving this whole time. Well, I don't know anything to contradict that, so I can only assume you are 100% correct. And as I check out Bombas.com, I see they've got the kind of stylish, fast-looking, athletic footwear that fits my active lifestyle. I mean, listen to this. Honeycomb arch support? Boy, does that sound like the kind of support I've been looking for on my runs. Did you also notice how Bombas is a buy one, give one operation? I did, and I actually really think that's terrific that every pair of socks you buy from Bombas.com Every time you do that, they donate a pair to the shelter, a homeless shelter. It makes me feel slightly less complicit for participating in an economic system I consider fundamentally bankrupt from a moral perspective. Well, don't let our advertisers hear you say that, Danielle. Instead, let them hear you say, Go to getbombas.com slash weekend for 20% off your first order. Before we go straight to the hornet's nest, we've got a couple of other letters on several subjects the, the very first one here is from Joe. And Joe writes, A few weeks ago, Valve once again changed how their user reviews work. Now, reviews from users who did not buy the game on Steam are not counted towards the average review shown on the store page. They claim this is in part to keep reviews from people who were given keys from re for review uh, from impacting that average score. 
with possibly biased opinions from those who got a free game. However, this also includes people who bought the game from a third party like Humble Bundle and activated the key on Steam. This has significantly affected the average review scores of a lot of games that were crowdfunded, since most of the players got their keys from the developer and not directly from Steam. I've seen a few games go from a positive average to a mixed average. The reviews are still there to read, they just don't count towards the average. For people who only look at the average score, and they exist, trust me, they may be turned away from a game. Could this negatively affect the future success of games which had most of their early sales through means other than Steam? Thanks for reading, Joe. Oh man, Steam just keeps tinkering with kind of everything this year, huh? Like, it, I feel like, there, you know, there's the two-hour refund system and, well, the refund system in general, and then the two hours played refund sort of stipulation, and now they're sort of messing with the review averages. I, you know... I am not one of those people who necessarily just looks at an average, for sure. Like, I like to actually read reviews and sort of try to attempt at least to read between the lines, especially when it comes to user reviews, because sometimes people have a vendetta. And like, you know, Steam reviews can be a, a thing. They sure can be a thing. Um, but I do appreciate that it, it is very useful for some people, especially if you don't have a ton of time or money and, you know, nobody has a ton of time and money. So whichever sort of side you, you are poorer on, uh, it's, it matters to you, certainly. So I can see how this could be a, a real pain in the butt, like for sure. I don't, I don't know if this is necessarily the best decision. Um, I don't, do you have strong thoughts on this, Rob? I don't have strong thoughts because I don't think it's a, like I think it's going to affect some games very differently than others. Sure. Um, I, I think in general it's probably not going to be a huge change, but like, uh, so okay. So I think one concern I would have is that people who are reviewing a game from being part of a crowdfunding effort, in a lot of cases, I think in more cases than like. More often than not, I would say those people uh, kind of want to support the game past their own monetary contribution and want to support it in terms of like, um, you know, in, in terms of reviews and things like that. So I can understand there's a wariness, especially as like crowdfunding is so damn common at this point. Yeah. And, and so many crowdfunded projects hit early access uh, uh, fairly often. I can understand a certain wariness around having a game's basic, basically fan community uh, come pouring in and and kind of brigading uh, the, the Steam reviews. Yeah. Uh, so I can I can understand like why you might want to uh, curb something like this. On the other hand, I'm not sure like that extends to things like you know through things like third party sellers. Uh, that seems like kind of a that seems like kind of a weird uh, yeah. decision. Uh, so where I think, like, I think who does get hurt by this are, are games that probably have cultivated a really, like, active uh, community, a really active, supportive community. And so they're probably going to see their scores uh, drop a little bit. On the other hand, like, maybe their scores should have dropped a little bit. You know, like, it's, sure. it's to a degree weeding out um, sort of these are, these are not necessarily neutral reviews. Um, on the other hand, a lot of reviews on Steam aren't neutral reviews. <laughs> There are very uh, few, in fact. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I mean, I, I I don't know. Like I in in general, in general, like more data is good. 
right? Like, you don't get a more accurate read by throwing out, like, results. You get a more accurate read by including them. Uh, and so I, I do find it a... Um, I find it a really, really weird uh, decision, and I don't think the, I don't think the stated reasoning really holds waters, water, right? Yeah. Like I don't think people who get keys, like how many people can there reasonably be uh, that are going to massively skew the average score on a platform like Steam? So I yeah. don't. I think I think fundamentally this is this this kind of just seems like, well, really like. Steam works because it works with a lot of third-party sellers, but secretly, we're not really happy about that. And we would <laughs> yeah. much prefer it if Steam were its own, like, controlled ecosystem. I do wonder on some level if any of it has to do with the amount of sort of scammers, <laughs> like YouTube scammers and people who want a key and... And, uh, yeah, and it's an effort to kind of yeah. yeah. I wonder if it has to do with that as well, you know, as an effort to kind of control some of the pushback from that i don't know i mean you know, nobody knows why steam does anything or nobody knows why valve does anything so it's kind of like you know we can only make educated guesses from the outside of the of the you know big old castle over there so all right so uh, our next email comes from sam hi danielle and rob the conversation about Canadian sci-fi and the wonders of a good trashy show instantly <laughs> brought to mind a cavalcade of my favorite shows, most of which were coincidentally shot in Canada. Uh, when it comes to lighthearted procedural sci-fi, The King is Warehouse 13's sister show, Eureka. <laughs> Eureka's pilot follows an everyman U.S. marshal who stumbles upon a town filled with super geniuses named Eureka. Through a series of events, he becomes the sheriff of the town, and each episode generally follows a theoretical science happens in real life plotline, and Sheriff Carter has to bumble his way to a solution with the help of his much smarter compatriots formula. It is a show that I've watched and rewatched so many times, each time being surprised that it is, in fact, as good as I remember. It also happens to be a show that I never watched the finale because I wanted to pretend it never ended. Oh. Some combination of the simple premise, fun acting, Joe Morton of Scandal fame, is a standout in performance as the town mechanic, and a commitment to its reality makes the show an absolute joy. It's light, serious what it needs to be, and smarter than it has any right to be. <laughs> Are there any shows, games, or films that you return to expecting to be worse than you remember, but always walk away surprised by how good they truly are? Uh, take a drink. Yeah, right? <laughs> Farscape. Every time I've come back to it, I've been like, man, it has problems, but it's so fucking good. And I was really scared the last time I went back. So the last time I went back was the first time since college. Yeah. And, you know, we're all a little starry-eyed in college. Well, at least some of us are a little starry-eyed in college. And went back as a grown woman. And I was like, man, this is so good. So, so good. I actually had this also with the sort of the 90s Star Treks. I, I went through... Um, you know, a sort of a phase when I watched every single episode of Next Generation, DS9, and Voyager in order. And I was kind of like, all right. <laughs> you know, I remembered some of them from being a kid in the, you know, 80s and 90s and, and sort of watching them and being like, oh, this was formative to my childhood. It's formative in some ways even to my sort of moral center. Like I... You know, if I had a what would Captain Janeway do bracelet or what would Captain Picard do or what would Captain Sisko do bracelet, you know, any of them, honestly, they're they're all pretty rad. 
uh, that's what I would wear, you know, for sure. Uh, and I went back and yes, of course, there are some dog ass episodes of each one of those shows, but mm-hmm. they hold up really well. Now, yes, I know Voyager is maybe the weaker link in in that, but I think Voyager gets very unfairly kind of saddled with, you're not my real dad, you know, as somebody <laughs> kind of put it once. Right. <laughs> somebody put that put it to me on Twitter once like that. I think there was a little bit of sexism there for sure. People were like, oh, the one with all the women. And, uh, you know, there, there are definitely some shit-ass episodes of Voyager, but it, it finds its voice, and it becomes a very good, very fun sci-fi series with, you know, if you avoid the, the shit. And there's shit in every one of those shows, so it's not, you know. Yeah. It's, it's, it's par for the course for 90s Star Trek. But overall, man, is that such a fun adventure to go on. And oh my God, these people are so memorable and so interesting and so much fun to be with. And really, I, I, I still get that little swell of pride in my chest for all the, the really good episodes that kind of have like a good moral center and they're, they're actually saying something about the world. And this is definitely from a simpler time in TV when saying something about the world was not, you know, necessarily as common there wasn't a giant prestige hbo series you know kind of around every corner so i I would say those hold up pretty nicely and i also clearly need to watch warehouse third uh sorry uh i've seen warehouse 13 i clearly need to watch eureka now yeah it sounds adorable yeah it sounds like fun (laughs) uh i think like i mean there's there's tons of things like this and i I think part of it is that a lot of (laughs) a lot of stuff that's like super genre and aimed at at fans of a certain kind of thing but if it really resonates is made with such sincerity and understanding of what the core appeal is that like the reason it still holds up is because the reason you fell in love with it is because it was really freaking good it really understood both its limitations and what people were looking for within those limitations uh i mean like i always go back to batman the animated series and nice. am sort of surprised at how damn good uh, that is. And, and the fact that, I, in my opinion, like it generated probably what is still the best Batman film uh, ever made, uh, Batman Mask of the Phantasm, uh, which is way darker and way scarier than the animated series um, and might actually like still feature a creepier Joker than the, uh, than the Ledger one. Oh, um, okay. But what that... What that series did, what, what Bruce Timm's vision of, of Batman and, and what uh, writers like Greg Rucka really really got was that, you know, Batman was, for one thing, it was sort of this, this, this Art Deco Gothic, um, like, vision of America. Uh, and also that Batman was a terrifying and menacing figure for criminals, but also... Uh, a very warm and human tortured one uh, for for his friends, and so it ends up being like one of the more it, it is it is consistently one of the more human um, like comic book shows uh, that 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 you'll ever find out there. Um, like another show that that I uh, that I return to a lot and am consistently surprised that it holds up is um, there was a show Secret Agent. Uh, in the UK, it was called Danger Man. Mm-hmm. Uh, in Good. in like the sixties, <laughs> yeah. uh, British TV. Uh, again, like literally, like the budget for ep- each episode w- would buy you like a latte today. 
Uh, like, there's this one hallway uh, that they reuse in literally every episode. They have two, like, really tiny elevators uh, at the end of it. Uh, but they reuse the set again and again and again and just redecorate basically the... Um, uh, like the wall sconces, so, to, like so basically, like if it's got if if, if it's got like um if, if it's got like a cast iron uh like uh you know sconce lamp or something, it's 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 Spain, it's a Moroccan thing. But if it's if it's really like uh you know very mod, uh well they must be Monte Carlo uh this week and and things like that. It's, it's very low budget. The guy basically like drives around uh, most of the time in like a compact car, um. But it ends up holding up really, really well uh, because it is actually, at the height of the Cold War, um, almost an act of, like, like it's a work of dissent. Uh, that as the series develops, uh, Patrick McGowan's um, secret agent... It's Patrick McGowan? Yes. Uh, oh, and And perfect. basically the show is okay. a prequel to The Prisoner. Uh, okay, like, great. Like yeah. there's 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 a lot of like like basically the the opening of the prisoner I think literally features the secret agent character walking into the boss's office of the old secret agent show. Okay. And that's when he's spirited away uh to to the prison to the prison colony. Okay, awesome. But there are episodes where the show within the boundaries of like 60s TV goes in such dark and mature directions uh it is it is entirely unexpected and after a point you don't care that there's no effects budget you don't care that like they're they're you know <laughs> like a beach is basically like a kitty a wading pool and a mat painting sure um you don't care about any of that because the 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 acting and writing is so damn good and it's also just fascinating because they were making this in the 60s and they basically have an episode where they catch, they smoke out a double agent, and McGowan is driving him. He's like, he's like, like McGowan is is driving this guy into two agents of a different era, and he asks the guy like, "What the hell happened here?" And this guy gives this speech basically about he became a communist sympathizer because no one else was going to fight the Nazis, and he knew it had to be done. Wow. And at the time, it felt like there was a great difference, and after the war it didn't seem like it really mattered anyway because both sides were on their way to screwing up the world anyway. Uh, and it's this, it's this like, it's this sad elegy on this entire political generation, uh, through the light of the cold war in this really throwaway, like case of the week kind of show. Uh, and that stuff is, that stuff is, is really cool. And, and, and you don't, and most shows from that era don't hold up, but the ones that do, uh, they manage it because they're, they're they're thoughtful about about what they're doing. Wow, I I I'm a massive The Prisoner fan, so I'm I didn't even know this existed, and I that just shot to the top of my. Yeah, there's some list. really good stuff. Like there there's like there's a really good like DVD set with the entire series. Nice. Um, it starts out as a half hour show. And then eventually it becomes a full hour, and the show, oh, nice. the storytelling gets a little more ambitious, and uh, it, it, it hits some like it, it hits some classic uh, espionage tropes, uh, such as the um, you're captured and you're in a you're you're in a camp, and is it is it real or are you still captured? Oh yeah. Uh, are you you know is it you know have you have you been liberated or are you just being tricked and Truman showed basically? Uh, yeah, there's tons of great stuff. 
Um, it's amazing. Danger Man. I just want to make sure I like. Yeah. I'm like gonna find this tonight. Like that's how excited I am about this. Yeah, you should you should look this up. Okay. Uh, so we got a couple e- other emails, but I think maybe we need to get to those magical realist hornets. I think that's a good um, idea. In their uh, in their in their whimsical clothes. Uh, these 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 fish out of water hornets uh, yeah. that, that have so much to tell us about our western. <laughs> yeah, I'll um, t- I'll take that first one from Gabriel. We, and, like uh, we literally said, like get fucked magical realism, right? Like that was a did. literal thing we said. We okay. were assholes. Okay. Yeah. Well, I, look, I was just I, I was just being your hype man. I, I just want to say that, like from yeah. the first here, like like I I can I, I mean, it's not my favorite thing, but like I think I think it's pretty clear. That you're the asshole here, Daniel. I'm totally the asshole. Uh, So just for context, if you weren't here last week, just just to set it up, I (laughs) aired some grievances about The Leftovers season one. By the way, the second season is amazing, like everybody said. Uh, But that first season really annoyed me. And then I took kind of a poo on magical realism as a genre. I, I expressed some difficulties that I had with it, and I was a dick. And in response to me being a total dick, we had a couple of very thoughtful letters from people who are much, much better read than I on magical realism. So our first one uh, comes from Gabriel. Gabriel wrote, So last episode, A Whole Candy Bar, you both expressed an aversion to magical realism. Magical realism as a genre is most associated with Latin American authors such as Gabriel Garcia Marquez or Isabel Allende. These authors wrote fiction that took place in the real world, but included magical elements, and this perceived blend of reality and magic became known in the Western world as magical realism. But here's the irony. To these authors, what is called magical realism is just realism. Most of the people who live in Arcata, Marquez's hometown, believe in what the West calls magic, and that it is as much a part of the real world as cars or computers. In other words, magical realism is just realism based on a different viewpoint of what constitutes reality. A contemporary example can be seen in South African land disputes. 90% of land was taken from indigenous Africans and given to white settlers during apartheid. In order to remedy this, the South African government allows black Africans to claim land as ancestral if they can provide the location of their ancestors' graves. Unfortunately, the white farmers aren't dumb, so they plant vast fields of sugarcane and corn atop ancient graves, hoping to make the sites impossible to find. But to many indigenous South Africans, deceased ancestors still inhabit the world, much like you or I, and they are only too glad to guide their descendants to their resting places. Long story short, many land claims are filled by people who locate their ancestors' graves and ask how they found those graves, they affirm that their deceased relatives told them where it is. Maybe the best video game example of magical realism uh, is from the from the Western perspective. Might be the 1992 microprose RPG Darklands. It sought to depict late medieval Germany as its inhabitants saw it. There were elves living deep inside the mines and witches gathering for a black sabbat, uh, dragons in the swamps, and satanic templars. To a late medieval German, none of these things were fantastical. They were all real. Unicorns, for example, were believed to be a real biological species well into the 18th century. Sorry for the long email, but brevity is not a virtue in anthropology. Keep casting good and righteous pods, Gabriel. Right, and, and a quick thing here. We got a lot, like, if, you're, if your letter is not being read, 
they were all great letters. We got a lot. We got a <laughs> yes. lot. Like basically, like this made the 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 witness mailbag explosion look mm. like you know just a just a a slightly busy day at the office. Uh, this <laughs> this was a pretty uh, th- this this was a pretty hot button for a lot of our listeners. A lot it of sure our was. it a, sure was a lot of monocles popped out. Uh, I feel like um, Darklands is a game that I really wanted to play. I know that uh, Troy Goodfellow, I think, is is moderately obsessed with it because it's yeah, it is a like it, it's it's Germany during the Thirty Years' War, except like magic is real, um, which is a really delicious premise. Um, but I also suspect being a nineteen ninety two RPG, it would be hard to get into. A little, a little tough. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, okay, and then we heard from our old friend uh, Niev Shanher, um with a little bit of uh, more like a, a bit, little bit of like uh, lit analysis uh, perspective on on the origins of magical realism uh, through through the lens of uh, of Icelandic culture. Hey, R&D, I just listened to last week's episode, and I gotta come to the defense of magical realism. (laughs) For some context, I'm coming at magical realism from my studies of Icelandic film, music, literature, and culture. This ultimately culminated in a master's thesis where I argued that American attempts to write academically about Icelandic media and culture largely ignore that Iceland is a post-colonial nation that still often uses magical realism as a major storytelling mode. This is because within Iceland... Modernity is still a relatively new thing imported by the U.S. during World War II. Prior to the war, Iceland was still a highly suppressed colony of the Danish monarchy. However, during the war, Denmark was occupied by the Nazis and was unable to communicate with Iceland. So Iceland seized on a clause in their agreement with Denmark to declare self-rule. At the same time, large numbers of American soldiers occupied the small island nation as Iceland was deemed a strategic point in the defense of the Atlantic. These American soldiers brought money into Iceland along with radio, television, and Coca-Cola, helping them prosper into the nation we know today, but also causing a major cultural crisis. Essentially, the U.S. Army base and its influx of money and culture filled Iceland with a great deal of anxiety, as they had effectively traded old-fashioned direct colonialism for the new American-branded globalism. They had money now, but were they giving up their heritage and culture to get it? To this day, there is still a great deal of concern and fear in Iceland about losing their cultural heritage, which they have long held dear in part because their language changed so little in the thousand years that they can still easily read the old Eddas and sagas. Imagine being able to easily read the original Old English Beowulf just because you speak English. That's what Icelanders have. Ultimately, this anxiety and tension is expressed in the form of magical realism, which I think intrinsically is a post-colonial mode of storytelling. In my own writing, I have relied on the theories of Zvetan Todorov, an early theorist on magical realism, who described it as the fantastic. In his main text on the genre, he stressed the importance of hesitation in magical realism, saying that it must oblige the reader to consider the world of the characters as a world of living persons and to hesitate between a natural and supernatural explanation of the events described. So ultimately, the point of magical realism is not to suspend your disbelief, but rather to be torn between the rational and the irrational. 
I say this is inherently post-colonial because it carries powerful meaning for those who are being asked to give up their old cultures, which are more often willing to embrace the irrational aspects of life for an opposed form of Western rationalism. For example, in Iceland, there is a much-touted belief in elves that is often used to exoticize Iceland, exoticize Iceland as quirky and weird. The fact that Bjork is similarly described as elfish is, of course, no accident, nor the fact that it seems impossible for any American or British music reviewer to discuss many Icelandic bands without comparing their music to the magical landscape of glaciers and volcanoes. But within Iceland, belief in elves is perhaps better described as a refusal to deny the possibility that elves could exist. As Icelandic folklorist Terry Gunnell puts it, you won't find Icelanders saying, I believe in elves, but here is a test I often tell foreign journalists to try when they come here. Ask an Icelander this question. Imagine you're going to build a hot tub in your garden. The problem is that there's a big rock where you want to put the hot tub, and you need to blow it up to put in the tub. Then someone tells you, don't, that is an elf rock. Will you blow it up? And this is where people hesitate. Again, hesitation is key. The point is not whether or not you believe in elves, but what elves mean culturally. Elves are a way to talk about nature as vast, unknowable, untamable. The point is not to decide if you believe in them or not, but rather to ponder what they mean at all. But be stuck hesitating and to reflect on your place in a world that is largely outside your control. So I think Rob is right when he says some of it is the leftovers and some of it is Danielle. Good magical realism, I think, makes both the rational and irrational, or natural and supernatural, explanations appealing but not fully satisfying, and so you linger and hesitate. More importantly, this hesitation isn't just some cheap pull to keep you coming back to find out the truth of which explanation is actually right, but is in fact the point of the narrative. Magical realism is embracing the fact that even with all our amazing scientific discoveries, we still only understand about 5% of the universe. No, this is an actual stat multiple particle physicists have given me to use during their legal arguments for why it's important <laughs> that they continue their work as a U.S. immigrant. <laughs> I haven't watched The Leftovers, but I suspect it isn't the best at encouraging this kind of hesitation in a way that feels meaningful and important. But also, it doesn't sound like this hesitation is also something you are actively seeking. Anyway, I've gone long, but I hope my explanations help you better appreciate what it is magical realism is able to offer. Also, I'm still waiting for Rob to play Life is Strange. I think there are interesting <laughs> conversations to be had about that game regarding magical realism and its place in queer narratives. All the best, Niav. Oh, my God. God damn, man. Like, a Niav letter is like Christmas goddamn morning for me. It seriously is. I learned so much just now. Like, I, lear I learned so much about not only, like, I Icelandic culture, but I also learned about, like, hey, here's how to fucking frame something that you don't understand. <laughs> like, God, oh, that's so good. And, you know, thank you so much. I I apologize, first of all, for, no, no, for no. putting all of Matt. No, because let's be fair. Uh, I put all, I put an entire genre sort of uh, under my butt and took a poo on it. Like, and, and clearly that wasn't the nicest thing to do, especially because I think I understand now why I disliked The Leftovers season one so much because I, I really loved the second season, which, to be honest, kind of goes even more bananas in a lot of uh, a lot of directions and even muddies the water even further. It's just, it was, um, I'll explain briefly. The first season was pretty much adapted from a book. And 
sometimes book adaptations are wonderfully successful. And sometimes when the genre is a little difficult and things are a little rocky, uh, something that relied probably pretty heavily on sort of interior thought and interior narrative doesn't always translate super well to TV. And the second season dispenses almost entirely with the book and actually just kind of goes in its own direction with a lot of these characters and was kind of written for TV and is more visually interesting and kind of goes in some interesting and, and weird places. So I, I think it's a the fa partially that Leftover season one just is really uneven. And I think the writing, honestly, it uh, doesn't give you many hooks to kind of... Uh, latch onto the way that later in the show it actually really does do that and it really does make you care about these characters a lot better but also i i'm not averse to this way of thinking like i i actually <laughs> i feel like a real dickhead actually for for just kind of saying that oh you know magical realism sucks like we're saying i had so many difficulties with it because to be honest th there's many elements of it that that are appealing like like i do like a lot of sci-fi that's that's not completely far off and something like the magicians isn't entirely far off from magical realism either so yeah i i i think i kind of i threw it all in together a little too much well, there and also i i appreciate the sort of framing of like we don't understand you know the the idea that we understand 5% of, of kind of what's going on resonates with me. And I, I don't like to laugh at, at, at things that people believe that maybe I don't believe. Like I, I, you know, I appreciate people's religious beliefs. And I also appreciate when, when people believe in, in things like ghosts or, or spirits or, or whatever else. Like I, you know, when I was younger, maybe I laughed at that sort of thing and then sort of came to the realization that like, Hey man, like we don't actually understand shit. Like we have, no, we have a worldview, and like, yeah, but you know, at the same time, I think at the at the same time, like, I I understand like, I I understand the desire to sort of walk back a blanket sweeping statement when you're giving greater context for it. Yes, but at the same time, I don't think that necessarily obliges you to walk it back to the point of like, yo, man, like I'm down with your belief in ghosts, like to a degree. Um, what's, what's the way to put this? Um, okay, so I think sometimes where I tend to get, where, where I tend to get very skeptical of things is, is when supernatural explanations are posited for things that we actually understand. Like denial of like denial of like things that like phenomena that are actually well understood uh a an impulse to believe in the uh in the magical or the superstitious or the traditional explanation for phenomenon that has been pretty well and accurately described and understood uh that i do find a little bit grating not necess not necessarily in literature right like that's that's sure. a different thing but that that impulse to deny uh that that impulse to sort of look at our growing understanding of the world and our growing understanding of how it functions and the the phenomena we encounter on a day-to-day -day basis and looking at all of that um and that understanding that is built has been built by generations of like scientists and thinkers and philosophers sort of expanding and chipping away at the edges of 
of our collective understanding. To look at that and then turn away and say, yeah, but I much prefer to think of it, <laughs> you know, to, to think that the... Uh, to to think that the gods of the forest made the forest, right? Or to or to you know what I mean, like to or sure. to think that the uh you know to to think that the spirits the the spirits brought the harvest, like yeah, no, I I totally I I completely agree with that line of thinking. I think I'm more just at this point where I'm kind of like you know what you believe whatever helps you sleep at night as long as you're not an asshole to me because to me a lot of supernatural beliefs sound like a lot of religious beliefs and I and I would prefer to just be like. You do you, man. I'm gonna believe my thing. If you if you have a very serious like, if this gives you comfort and happiness in your life, and you're able to live in a society with me and not, you know, do things like vote my rights away, <laughs> then I'm cool with you. Like, if you genuinely believe in the Great Spaghetti Monster, that's fine with me as long as you're not gonna hurt me, basically. Right. You know what I mean? Like, I guess this is a very ACLU position to have, right? Like, the very, like, you know what? Religious liberty, dude. Like, you want to go to the Church of the Jedi? Cool. Cool. As long as you can, as long as you can separate church and state, and you can be a citizen in this world and be, you know, a a productive and non-violent citizen in this world, do it. Go for it. You know, via con Dios, dude. You know, that kind of thing. Yeah, but I, I feel like... That's that's a question of like human rights though. That's that's a, that's a question of sure. like how like how how we enforce these things on a society societal level. I'm thinking more in terms of of, of just in terms of an aesthetic or or a point of view. Okay. Like I'm okay. not like I'm not run, I'm not saying like yo if you, like people who cling to their superstitions in the face of like scientific understanding should be put up against a wall. Like I'm not no I'm not going all like <laughs> okay. Neil deGrasse yeah, totally, Tyson totally. Uh, yeah. on this. <laughs> uh, but but what bothers me is that that mm, this this is less about magical realism and I think more about uh, maybe like what spiritualism has come to mean in in Western society in some ways. Okay, okay, uh, sure. where it's not a willingness to have to to appreciate the duality uh, that that we have this sense of the mystical that resides alongside our sense of the rational. Uh, but to instead say it's mysticism all the way down. I prefer I that. Like okay. it is, a, it is an aesthetic choice to say, I, you know, science, you know, whatever science says, here's what I choose to believe because it aligns with sort of my vision of, of how the universe should, should be that kind of bugs me. And I think maybe where I tend to like, where I, where I tend to look a bit askance at, uh magical realism is that often uh often there's there there's a couple things one is that I often feel that then maybe this is to be expected from to a degree a uh an a, a motif that is informed by like post colonialism and colonial resistance uh but sometimes I find the critiques on offer uh through the lens of magical realism of modern society to be pretty heavy handed and and sure. and un, and and unmoving uh but but that said um i do tend to have a great deal of sympathy for the perspective that that there is that that there is this duality and i and i think like diehard rationalists are 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 wrong to deny its validity 
yeah. that you can understand that we live in a universe of of like uh, clear like scientific law um and yet also have a sense of mystery or animism about the entire thing but i think just in terms of the way magical realism the, the way i tend to encounter magical realism i tend to find it a little bit i suppose i am i am just western enough to find this critique <laughs> fundamentally grating <laughs> there you go it's the westernism that we discussed a few weeks ago for sure kind of coming back well, I, i'm go ahead go ahead no no i just uh, like one of my favorite um one of my favorite books, uh, and I think I've brought it up on this podcast, uh, Napoleon Notting Hill. Yes. Um, uh, G.K. Chesterton. Toward the very start of the book, uh, there's this there's this conversation with this. Um, basically, it's it's the last president of uh, like Mexico or something like that. Uh, and basically, in this universe, like Britain has conquered the world, or the West has conquered the world, and there are no more free nations. Uh, there's just there's just basically a global British Empire or states that are exactly like the British Empire. And the last president of Mexico or something that they meet at the start of this book um, was sort of the last holdout. And now he's been deposed and he's living in a dignified retirement in London. And he makes this critique. And I think this is like, is to a degree, G.K. Chesterton also, also like, tends to work in terms of, of magical realism to a degree, I suppose. Uh, but he, he makes this critique toward the start where he points out that the Western imperial project only goes one way, that it's this constant drive to find people who haven't adopted Western society and fix them by making them adopt Western <laughs> society. And yeah. so they, they constantly say, like, you know, the, the example he gives is you ask your Englishman he finds an Eskimo and he says, dear God, here's this Eskimo uh, who, who doesn't understand, um, who doesn't understand like uh, the steam engine or, does, or doesn't understand um, like parliamentary democracy. But English, like <laughs> Englishmen would laugh if the Eskimo turned around and said, my God, here's this Englishman who doesn't know how to fish yeah. or something like that. And, the the critique was the western colonial project was always this belief that western like westerners like western europeans had literally all the answers and there was no other perspective uh worth considering that there was nothing to learn from all these billions of people living in different places with different experiences uh, and that was sort of the the poison at at the heart of the project and that's that's always been something i've i've you know that's that's something i've always sort of agreed with wholeheartedly and i suppose that is uh the westerner's perspective uh sort of you know lo looking from the other side of the the two-way mirror um that that is sort of the perspective uh the obverse of, of magical realism yeah i think that it sounds really good to me and I, I i sort of always try to look at things like okay most human pursuits you know philosophy science religion most, you know, sort of giant, massive subject matter are all an attempt to understand our world and our species a little better and impose some sort of order on it that we can understand because, you know, we live in a fundamentally disordered universe and we like to think that yeah. there's order, there's comfort in thinking that there's order. Whether that order looks like 
the laws of science or whether that order looks like commandments brought down from God or whether that order looks like uh, a more what's this term? animism, you know, whether it looks like, you know, spirits live in things. It's, it's all kind of, it's all kind of a, a, a journey to try to do the sort of same thing. And I, I suppose I, I'm sort of coming at this from, th from saying like, you know what? I definitely have my ideas about this. Um, and I just kind of don't want to be a, a dick about my ideas about it, I suppose. That's true. But I also um, really want my hot tub. Yeah. And I want to blow up that rock. That, that hot tub, I bet, would be a lovely addition. <laughs> but, but I don't want to, I don't, I don't want to piss off people that, you know, think there are elves there either. Like, that's not, that's not how I want to start off my, you know, having my house in Iceland. Right. <laughs> so, you know, right. <laughs> yeah. So I guess that's where we're at uh, <laughs> in Iceland. Oh, but oh my God, Niamh, thank you so much. And Gabriel, thank you. And thank you everybody who wrote in uh, to to chat about this. I, I learned a lot today. And uh, learning is, uh, you know, one of our main goals here at Idol Weekend is to, Apparently. Uh, to learn. <laughs> to learn a lot now, about now, our, now, our human Now I world. think we need our, our, now we need our magical realist uh, reading list. Uh, I think we, we do. Need, we need recommendations about the, <laughs> the stuff we should be, because clearly, like we've encountered the wrong stuff somewhere. Uh, yes. Maybe, maybe the wrong uh, Echo. Maybe, maybe the wrong uh, Marquez. Who knows? But, but either way, uh, we 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 probably need some need some direction toward the toward the good ones, uh, as it were, to the ones to to help us get over our prejudices. Yeah, uh, leftover but, season two is great. That's some good magical realism right there. So, you know, you just have to get through season one <laughs> to get to the good stuff. Yeah, but I season think. one literally made you say, like, oh. <laughs> get fucked magical realism. Yeah. Then maybe not. Oh, it's so, oh, it's infuriating because it's, it's, there's such good stuff in there. You know, there, <laughs> there really is. Like, the second season is fantastic, I think, and it goes to some weird places. Oh, anyway, it's, yeah. I mean, I, I suppose this is a great segue into our weekend projects because, you know, I've already said Leftover Season 2 is pretty great. I have another weekend project. But, Rob, I'm going to I'm gonna let you talk about a cool thing that you're interested in, and it's probably not going to be in the genre of magical realism. Well, that depends. <laughs> I mean, maybe it will be. Maybe this has inspired you. <laughs> no, um... So I have been reading uh, a comic series uh, called Grayson, ooh, uh, which is basically as, as part of the entire DC universe being rebooted a couple years ago. Dick Grayson, the former Robin, the former Nightwing, uh -huh. basically stopped being a superhero entirely <laughs> and was put into his own comic book series wherein he's like a 60s style super spy. Awesome. And his partner is Huntress, uh, who is sort of was was always sort of his his foil in in a lot of the uh, the Batman and Nightwing books. Um, she's she's sort of the uh, the dark side of the vigil vigilantism, uh, but it's a really cool series because it's on the one hand it is super sci-fi and it is a sort of sci-fi that, that definitely sometimes verges on, on magical realism. Okay. Um, sure. like they are finding, uh, fragments, uh, bits and pieces of like a dead God's body, oh. uh, that people are like surgically implanting themselves with to give themselves superpowers. 
Um, they're working for an organization where all the Asians are equipped with uh, a form of mind control that causes their faces to be like blurred when people look at them and nobody can remember anything. And, and in the art, it's very stylized. It's um, these very, again, like literally the haircuts, the the clothes, everyone looks like they've stepped out of like the 60s or 70s. Yeah. And so you've got like nice. these, these very like long combed uh, style, you know, long combed hair, um, you know, uh, thick rimmed uh, glasses, and then a face that's just like a smear. Um, it's it's really cool and, and really stylish, but but also uh, it's just really cool because the thing about the Dick Grayson character has always been that like of, of anyone in sort of Batman's or, orbit, Dick Grayson was the well-adjusted one. He was the most sort of decent person uh, in that entire uh, milieu. And so here he is in a massively morally compromised, uh, like spy operation, <laughs> and it's about him sort of sort of dealing with that. And there's there's a lot of cool issues. Uh, there's there's a lot of cool adventures, and they they do a lot of different. Like what what one issue looks like is is not remotely what you'll find in the next one. Uh, they have very distinct styles and, and approaches to storytelling. Uh, so in some ways, it works like a like a very good. Uh, like spy show, right? Where it can it can change a lot from week to week. Uh, but what really like made me fall in love with it is the end of the first trade, uh, the trade edition. Is um. This adventure called "Only a Place for Dying," and it is told in reverse chronological order from the very end of basically Grayson's entire spy arc, huh. all the way through to his origin with the death of his parents, the Flying Graysons, uh, at the hands of Tony Zuko, uh, which fans of the animated series will remember uh, the episode Robin's Reckoning uh, as one of the best episodes uh, of that series. But it's told in reverse chronological order. Every page is a different vignette, taking you from basically the end of the road for, for Robin as a spy and tracing back through a lot of things that haven't happened yet in the main continuity of the story and then into his past as Nightwing and Robin and then as an orphan. Uh, and it is such a stylish and well-written and, and well-constructed uh, story. It's, it's just fantastic. Um, oh, and it's, it's, it's a really cool, like, I, I hadn't realized that as part of sort of the, the DC Comics reboot, they were doing things that were so completely off the beaten path and really pushing like familiar characters into completely unfamiliar scenarios. Nice. Oh man. It seems like DC is like almost taking sort of a, the opposite tact of, of the DC movies. <laughs> like <laughs> the DC movies have been like, mm, sort of feel a little bit way. lately. And then it, it's, it sounds to me like, wow, they're, they're, they're pushing and it and it sounds fascinating well, and really I'm, cool. I'm kind of wondering if if that's more to do with like, you know, Marvel Studios. I think it, it sort of seems like Marvel Studios is not completely out of the hands of Marvel, but yeah. with DC, those movies I think are entirely what Warner wants them to be. Oh sure, and yeah, as a studio, sense. Warner just seems like they're completely like like utterly without vision or direction. Uh, right now so i think they've got a real problem where i think dc as a as a comic company maybe is trying to get its act together and and sort of move in a more marvel direction 
uh, and then and then their their cinematic universe is basically run by people who are like, man, those Marvel movies are really good. What if we just did that, but like more violent and, and grittier? Yeah, and and ugh. there's also there's also the part of me that's saying like, God, I just want DC to do weird shit too. Like not just not just want to copy Marvel. Like I, I I find a lot of the Marvel. The, sorry, I won't go on a tangent, but I do find a lot of the Marvel movies pretty boring to be honest. I love Jessica Jones, and I know I'm gonna love Luke Cage, uh, but but oh, I want man, DC I thought, to like, do so these things in Luke movies Cage. too. I'm so worried What's about up? Luke Cage. I'm so worried about Luke Cage. Oh man. The write up in the ringer made me really concerned. Oh no. Oh no. I was I was feeling good about it in, in terms of it being in the you know the, the creative hands of good people, but Yeah, shit. it sort of sounds like like the the last line of the ring review uh is pretty damning. It is uh oh, no. it is but what, Luke Cage asks about black on black crime. Oh no. And so I'm super concerned oh, about no. the direction oh, of, God. uh, yeah, um, oh. like I am super concerned that Luke Cage is going to be about, you know, what this black superhero needs to do is clean up his own community first. No, 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 oh no. Because uh, I, so I am <laughs> like, oh man, like, like if they if they fucked up this character, if they took that awesome character from Jessica Jones oh. and like steered him <laughs> off a goddamn cliff. No. Like the fact that the trailer seems to imply the big plot point is the fact that he's defending his local barbershop, which like I get, but at the same time it seems a little stereotypical. I don't yeah. know. I'm, I have concerns. You'll have to let me know how it goes. Oh God, yeah. I was planning on watching it this weekend, so now I'm terrified because I I had done the blackout thing and you know just only knew the sort of on paper like who was making it, who was involved, you know that sort of thing. Thinking like okay, you know they you know, but shit. Okay, well. That's probably going to be next weekend's project or <laughs> cautionary tale. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe something we talk about and don't endorse, potentially. Um, wow. Okay. Shit. <laughs> well, on that I'm note. I'm sure it's great. I'm sure it's great. No, I hope it is. But like that has me very worried Like, because that's the worst thing that could happen to it is it being basically kind of a racist pile of crap. Uh, but let's hope that didn't happen and we will <laughs> we will see soon. I, uh, for my weekend project, I watched the first episode of Westworld uh, last weekend when it came out, and oh my god, am I intrigued by Westworld. So, okay. premise, it's sci-fi, it's HBO, you know, it's it's beautifully shot, beautifully overdone, you know, HBO prestige series, uh, but with a fascinating premise. Um, it's the far future, and there is a park, it's sort of like... Walt Disney World on super testosterone steroids um, with a Wild West town. It's like a Wild West town that is basically a giant ARG sort of MMO kind of concept. You go there in costume and you are able to role play any kind of Wild West fantasy that you want to have, no matter how depraved or noble, as they say in the show. And all of the, the sort of characters, all of the NPCs in the game are hyper-advanced androids whose memories are wiped every day so they don't have to live with the trauma of the terrible things that people basically do to them as, you know, players in this world, in this this vast, you know, Grand Theft Auto in the Wild West style world. Um, and because players do a lot of terrible things, there is, here is the content warning, trigger warning, there's a whole bunch of rape 
in the first episode, uh, you know, the ba- from the bad guys, you know, sort of the bad NPCs to the, you know, the nice NPCs kind of thing. Uh, there's a whole lot of racism. There's a whole lot of sexism. It's presented as, oh, this is the Wild West. This is part of that world. And uh, it's fucked up and bad. But, you know, boys will be boys and they have their fantasies. And there's a character, a young woman character, who's, you know, the oldest android in the park, but nobody would know it from looking at her, who's sort of this milky white maiden kind of character. She's sort of, She sort of exists to be saved. And, you know, the premise uh, of the first episode is that these androids are starting to get kind of a clue, a little bit of what's going on. They're so smart in order to be, you know, to appear incredibly human and, you know, fully... Uh, across the uncanny valley, basically, like they're they're completely believable. Uh, to be that smart, they're starting to sort of approach self awareness. So it's that's sort of where we're at in the first episode, without spoiling too much. And it is it is both, you know, sort of a fascinating adventure, and it's kind of asking those really hard questions that I loved so much in Star Trek. It's asking those questions about sort of personhood. And whether or not these androids have any rights, you know, or they should have rights, they certainly don't in the context of the series. They're just automatons that are just treated as, you know, pleasure playthings, basically, to either be shot or fucked or or whatever. Um, and, you know, there are prostitutes in, in this world. You know, they're sort of hanging around at the saloon and they, they basically exist, uh, you know, for the player's pleasure. And it, it definitely... <laughs> Uh, you know, it definitely set me on a path thinking about, uh, my own sort of behavior in video games and like, you know, we're certainly not there at at any level about, you know, uh, AIs in video games are, they definitely do not have personhood, but, uh, this is, this is sort of going the, you know, 10 steps beyond and saying like, Hey, if we did actually create AIs, what would the ethics of that be? What would the ethics of your behavior when you're having fun? What are the ethics of pleasure sort of at that level? Which I find really fascinating. And uh, man, do I uh, eagerly anticipate the, sort of the places that they go. Uh, very, very, very strong first outing for that show. Okay, that, so, sounds, yeah. that sounds really good. Westworld, I'm, I'm in it. And it is based on sort of a Michael Crichton uh, novel and like a 70, I think a 70s movie that Michael Crichton himself had directed. Uh, so it's, you know, it's it's coming from the king of what if sci-fi, I guess, or sort of a the, king the, of the, what the if sci-fi. The former king, yeah. Yeah, yeah a king, I, a, a prince, maybe a duke, perhaps, of a what if sci-fi. So it's a, yeah, it's, it's a good classic premise and it, and it feels like it's being, uh, uh, that the sort of the, the, best part of the sort of mental fat to chew on is actually being taken seriously. So that's pretty cool. Oh my goodness. So I think that's about time for us to uh, to wrap up and enjoy our weekends. So this episode of Idle Weekend was actually produced by me. So hopefully that's going to keep going well. And it's hosted on the Idle Thumbs Network. You can learn more about Idle Weekend at idleweekend.net and send us questions for our weekend correspondence at questions at idleweekend.net. To keep up with the latest from us, follow us on Twitter at Idle Weekend. And please, if you do have a moment, if you could go ahead and rate us on iTunes and tell your friends, tell your puppy, tell your frenemies, you know, tell your distant relatives, tell whomever you think might enjoy the show about us. It means the universe to us. It's how we grow the show. And we really, really do appreciate it. And we appreciate your amazing letters as well. They have been incredible. Nobody else gets letters like us. And we really, really do appreciate that. So thank you. 
And for Rob Zachney, this is Danielle Riendo wishing you the finest of Idle Weekend.